2: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the book New Books Network. I'm your host, Rosemary Valenzuela Vicente, and I'm here talking to Dr. Tiffany Sipial about her new book, Celia Sanchez-Manduley, The Life and Legacy of a Cuban Revolutionary, which was published in 2020 by UNC Press. Dr. Sipial is a director for the Honors College and professor of history at Auburn University. Her first book, Prostitution and Modernity and the Making of the Cuban Republic, was published in 2013 and was awarded the Alfred B. Thomas Award for Best Book and Latin American Subject at Segolas. I'm so excited to talk to her today and celebrate her latest academic achievement. Dr. Sipial, welcome to the channel. It's wonderful to have you.
1: Thank you. I'm honored to be here
2: to talk about The Book in and, and Cuba and whatever else we stumble into. Yeah, it's going to be a fun conversation. This is probably one of the one of the more difficult books that I've had to cover because it's just so meaty and there's so many questions that I wanted to ask and kind of bringing it down like you know like i I was going to ask a lot of questions so bringing it down to like the the few that i kind of stumbled on was really difficult and that just goes to show that it was a really interesting book
1: that's sweet thank you very much that's kind
2: um so to begin i just wanted to start off a little bit and talking about like background and a little bit in terms of like methodology questions could you talk a little bit about what made you want to become a cubanist and your decision to move forward and work on the revolution for your second monograph
1: happy to so In my position as, well, as professor too, but certainly now as director of the Honors College, I talk a lot about the importance of undergraduate research, and and I lived the importance of that in a very personal way, and this book is a testament to that. So this book began as an undergraduate research project. When I was a junior in, in college in Texas, my professor, my Latin American literature professor, won a grant, and... Um, wrote me into the grant and took me to Cuba. This was my second trip out of the United States. And she said, you know, when she signed me on, when she put me on the grant, she said, I'll take you with me as my research assistant, but you have to work on your own project. And I was very young. I didn't know much about how one does research, but at the time I had become interested in women in Latin American Revolution and specifically the women in the Zapatista movement in Mexico. And so I thought, well, this is an opportunity to learn about revolutionary women in Cuba. That summer that I traveled with her, she taught me the basics of conducting research. And so I spent that summer working in in a very introductory way on understanding her legacy, Celia Sanchez's legacy, where the documents about her were, some interviews, and um, I, w- I don't want to date myself, but that was many years ago. And it's been a project that since that time has captivated my attention. But that's really how I became engaged with this project. And then that summer, you know, not to sound too Pollyannish, but I just came, became fascinated with Cuba and its history and politics. And it stuck. And so I went on to graduate school. This was my master's thesis. Um, did not pursue this for my dissertation for reasons that I discussed in the book that have a lot to do with just the complications of access to the kinds of sources I wanted and needed um, uh, about Celia at the time. And so I, I wanted, I pursued something else. My, my first book was my dissertation project, but I, I never forgot about the Celia project. I always worked on it. I always was gathering information and talking to people. And so when it came time to to consider what my second project would be. It seemed um, obvious, I think, that I would would really dedicate the time to making the Celia project um, come to fruition. So it's been a long labor of love, and it's really just so thrilling to see it out in the world now and have the chance, like we're have we have right now, to talk about some of the aspects of her life and and legacy.
2: Yeah, and I was I was particularly interested, and I was really engaged, I think, with the book because of your like notes and kind of like your journey and doing the research. I think that kind of shines through really well. And, you know, like, especially in, in the earlier chapters, like your your trips to Havana and going to her house and things like that, like those, those kinds of um, anecdotes were really interesting to kind of read through as a researcher, you know, as a budding researcher, it was really interesting to kind of read through how you kind of approached it. And then the kind of things that you ended up sort of piecing together from her life, which was, I, I thought was fantastic. Can you, um, can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to pursue biography as a genre of historical study? Because I think in many ways, a lot of people could approach this as like a women's history and just talk about multiple women in general. Um, but you decided to really kind of focus on Celia Sanchez, which obviously you, you mentioned, especially um, in your preface, that you did all this research on her. And so she was kind of like your main figure. But what made you want to kind of pursue a biographical um, historical study?
1: Yeah, and it's so different than my my first book. But I think going back to the origins of the project, the the guidance that my professor at the time gave me was let's take, again, being a junior in college, she's like, let's take the grand scope of women and revolution down to one personality, right? One person, one key figure that we can can focus on. And Celia um, popped on my radar as someone who it was it became clear in my sort of introductory work that she had played this tremendous role in the revolution but what was like it was a it became kind of a, a detective story in many ways from the beginning of for someone to be so significant and there not be a biography written about her to not really have a focused study of her life and legacy seemed it was, I was. Intrigued, I was, you know, amazed. I was um, annoyed, you know, all <laughs> of those kind of feelings. And so I thought, here's in this grand theme, this grand topic, women in the Cuban Revolution. Um, here is an omission that seems worth tackling. And then, of course, I think you just you become enamored of the of the of the hunt, right? For somebody in her as talk about in the book. She's an intriguing and frustrating person to write about because she was so instrumental in so many ways for so long, but she did everything she could to keep her life private. She did not conduct a lot of interviews. Um, there aren't a, a lot of photos of her and, um, and and the documents surrounding her life are difficult, uh, as I detailed, to, to, to find. But I got hooked, I think, on... <laughs> trying to find where are the pieces, when someone actively wants to be out of the spotlight, how do you write a biography about that person? And so um, I think that became part of the of the fun and frustration. But um, I uh, I hadn't, you know, I'm I, not somebody who had a lot of experience writing a biography, but that's where it started. And then it just kind of, um, her, Every time, you know enough, I'm sure to know, like every time you find a new piece, it could be a little nugget. It's like another (laughs) little breadcrumb, right? And it just keeps you, this is what we historians love. Um, It keeps you moving forward. It keeps you going, well, I found one. Let me see what else I can find. And one conversation with someone, one interview would lead to two or three more suggestions of people I could talk to. And so, again, over the course of 20 years, um, more and more things started to pile up to where a biography seemed possible because just because I wanted to do it didn't mean it would be possible. And believe me, I had many moments where I thought, you know, I'm just not going to be able or I question whether or not I'd be able to find enough to build a biography. Or in fact, what if what would happen would be that I would write something about, you know, the sort of pantheon, so to speak, of women leaders more broadly within the Cuban revolution, and she would be one piece. Um, But in the end... Uh, through some interesting sort of developments, I I, I was able to get enough to to keep it focused on her.
2: Wow. Yeah. Um, It's really interesting, too, how you kind of grappled with exactly what you just said. Um, The idea that Celia Sanchez was such a private person, and you were so grappling, and I could tell that in the way that you wrote about her, you were so grappling with the notion of like, how do you tell her story with and still kind of maintain her privacy and her wishes. And I thought you did a really good job. Um, we can talk about this a little bit later. But I think especially when it came to her romantic life, I think that was something that um, or choices that you made, I think, as a historian that were really key in kind of preserving that and keeping that authenticity that that were really brilliant.
1: I appreciate that. Yeah, those are those are touchy subjects. And again, remembering that the dynamics and I lay this out in the introduction because I think it's super important. I always had it on my mind and I want the reader to to be aware that, that just even the political dynamics of being a, someone from the United States writing about one of the most revered figures of the revolution. And how so how do you treat those areas um, respectfully, but truthfully, as truthfully as the documents and the, the evidence will allow. Right. So um, those are those are fun and, and decisions to make. And certainly, I called on colleagues to help me think through those those things because I wanted to do it well, and I never wanted to step beyond what actual evidence would allow me to. Except to say, well, we can't deny that this or that sort of framing of her legacy exists, but. Um, but here's what what we can say with certainty, whatever that means. You know, we historians are skeptical about those things, but they're intriguing, intriguing methodological quandaries for sure.
2: Yeah, I'm sure. Um, so to kind of start digging into like the, the real meaty chapters of the book. Um, what would you say makes Celia Sancho such an important figure in Cuban history? Um, how does she, especially, I, we'll, we'll cover this a little bit later, obviously, in the, our conversation, but how does she come to encompass the ideals of like Cuba's new woman?
1: Yeah, it's so interesting because I don't think it's a role she ever wanted. and And yet, when you look at the women of her generation who had the greatest impact on the revolution there's there are a handful of names that you come across repeatedly and and she is certainly considered to be one of the the core you know the sort of inner core of that historical generation and um and I think she she was she was a hesitant leader like I said she never really wanted to be in the spotlight but if you look at across the chapters across the sort of phases of her involvement you know she was really good at understanding her strengths and she her work always played to to those strengths she was really good at networking really good at bringing people together she was very strategic in terms of being able to mobilize resources and she understood the need for you know that for these kinds of changes there's a huge amount of Uh, support that's necessary, material support and personnel. And she was really good at building those foundations. And I think she also was um, really good at understanding the importance of preserving history. And she started that very early on. Of course, we'll talk, I know about her, her archive that she created, but she, she understood from very on early on how important it was to save the documents for the revolution and then there's this other really interesting creative piece of the buildings and the public okay. works projects um, that she she helped to bring to life. And so I think that her participation during the revolution is was critical. And, and that's why I, I thought it was important to go into depth in all the ways that she was involved and how it made an impact and how it shaped the trajectory of the fighting, the war, but then also afterwards. And then, of course, the legacy of the public works projects, this archive that she created, etc. I think are just really critical for um, how we understand and learn about the what their goals and methods were during the course of her of her time, her participation in the revolution. And so, I think she was very authentic, true to her talents, and I would say, you know, true to her values in terms of what leadership should look like or what she was comfortable with leadership looking like. And um and I think that's what people that's what people remember her from in how they remember her in Cuba.
2: Yeah, and I think um the the topic of remembering, I think you you handle really beautifully and and I think it's your final chapter where you kind of talk about the different afterlives of Celia Sanchez. And I thought that was A really great way to kind of end her story is not just talking about like, you know, the events surrounding her death, but also what her life, her legacy really means to Cubans on the island, as well as how it's been used by the government. I thought that was really interesting. And of course, we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the conversation. But to kind of start off with sort of talking about her childhood, which I think, and you mentioned is a part that we don't really know that much about. And I'm sure this part was one of those areas where you had to do a lot of kind of investigative work and kind of piecing things together here and there. So in the first chapter, um, we you you kind of like, you know, bring us back to her. um, In the second chapter, I mean, you you bring us back to her childhood home. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what her childhood was like and what her relationship with her family was like?
1: Yeah, this was one of the as you rightly point out, this was a difficult chapter. I thought it was such an important chapter to write. And I talk about this in the book that, that, that those pre revolutionary years of her life haven't received a lot of attention, which gives the perception that her life began with the revolution, right? That, that sort of what came before, well, it was what it was, but what's really important is who she was within the context of the revolution. And, and I think that misses some really critical pieces for understanding her motivations and why she led in the ways that she did or how she framed her, her leadership journey. Um, So I wanted to make sure that she got, you know, that that era of her life got significant attention, but it was definitely piecing it together because a lot of the people who were part of her life at that time are no longer alive. It wasn't like they were giving interviews necessarily. Um, Some, some did. And I certainly included all of those, but her, her childhood was, was interesting. Her father was a physician and went to medical school at the University of Havana and then made this sort of unconventional decision rather than staying and practicing medicine in, in Havana, went to Luna uh, at the eastern end of the island, very small rural community. And and he did so because of his his sense that, you know, serving rural communities in this way was important he worked closely with the sugar workers at the at the local um, factory, often didn't charge for his services or, or so the story goes. And um, but the, he was very deeply embedded in um, caring for you know the, 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 those communities where people didn't have a lot of money. They worked incredibly hard hours. Um, they didn't have access to a lot of the services available in the big city. And I think that's just so cr- understanding. His motivations, his biography, his life is so important for understanding her because she, after following the death of her mother, which I talk about in the book, you know, when she was very young, her father was really the critical influencer and shaper of her of her life, and he was um, very much devoted to the teachings of Jose Marti, the the, her- the hero of Cuban independence. And taught her a lot about Cuban history and really steeped her in those values of humility, um, patriotism, a belief in independence and and sovereignty and his own political activities and her witnessing, not only witnessing all of that, but also participating um, in some of his runs for office and sort of participating in some social upheavals and pushback against factory leadership that was abusing workers. She, all of that is part of the fabric of who she was and who she became. And so, again, I thought no matter how difficult and how much piecing together it would require it was really important to talk in depth about those, the early tragedies, um, the early shaping by her father and to understand, and that's why I've spent a lot of time in Luna, is just understanding the, the environment that she came from. And I say this in the book, I think it's really important for her legacy that she came from a small rural community in the eastern part of the island and not from Fifth Avenue in Havana. Right. This is that understanding of her as this humble woman of the people is absolutely tied to geography. And I'm not, I don't mean to suggest that that those weren't authentic values, but in the same way that Fidel, you know, his, his sort of rural roots is a a significant part of his, the framing of his legacy. I think it's also true for her. And then why they had, they seem to be sort of kindred spirits in many ways. They had that powerful thing in common. So again, I think it's unfortunate that that's been kind of omitted from her, her story and I, and I hope this is, in part at least remedies that and helps us understand those early those early influences.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think I was um in particular like really struck by like the anecdotes that you provide about her like emerging political consciousness and just who she was as a child, the fact that she was, you know, this rebel child, so to speak. Um I thought was really interesting and kind of added a little bit more depth to the story that we kind of know already. And gives us a perspective that, you know, her life did not just exactly like I just, like you said earlier, did not just start with the revolution or her relationship to these men, but she was this very kind of independent thinker on her own.
1: That's right. I, I think I say or something to the effect of, you know, she's she's someone who found her movement. It's it's not a she was well on her way to um, I mean, she was already involved in in organizing and all of that. When the the revolution started to take place, it's not like she stumbled blindly into a movement and then was shaped and changed by, or, or came to know herself in that way through the revolution. Certainly she grew as a result of that involvement, but, um, they were, it was a good match. Her, her Celia and, and the 26th of July movement. And I think that's an important distinction, right? As you're, as you're pointing out. And I wanted to make sure that that was, that that was clear. And, um, so, yeah, I think it's it's not that she came to be she suddenly came, became a political person when the revolution happened.
2: Right. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the like her move from Medellin to Pilon and what kinds of organizations she was emerging she herself into in that early period of her life?
1: Yeah, I thought. There, that was an, again, a, this early era of her life was so important to trace um, in detail. So she, they moved to Pilon, her father again, working with factory, sugar factory workers, it's sort of a different environment in some ways, and yet also very similar rural, coastal. Um, but she, according to people who, who knew her in that t- phase of her life, she adjusted very quickly to the change became her father's almost right-hand assistant, um, became much more involved in his going on his rounds, his medical rounds, which is important because she saw his interactions with people and she learned firsthand through her own observations, who they were, what their needs were, what their joys and laments were. And again, you see that ability to connect to people uh, on on an individual basis You see that as something, a skill set right? that she carries through her her life. And again, her father was very much concerned with not just the the physical health of the workers, but also with their treatment um, at the hands of um, the sugar factory sort of administrative um, core. And um, and and you see her starting to put these things together. I think in a in a much more sophisticated way, right? The workers, their needs, um, how those needs could be met and needed to be met in a variety of ways. And so even at this very young age, she starts to become involved in, you know, for example, the one example I, I, that people often remember or talk about is is making sure that the workers, the sugar factory workers, children had Christmas gifts. And it's sort of early organizing, but this is where she starts working out. Okay, here's a need. How do we meet that need? What kind of network of support needs to be put in place in order to gather the what we need? And um, and so it's I wouldn't say it's a laboratory. That sounds a little too clinical, but it's it is her her first steps into trying to you know problem solution, and and was actually quite. Um, adept at it from an early age, and and very, again grounded in um, this servant kind of of value system that comes straight through her her father, and so something that as I wouldn't say simple, but um, early as the making sure that the children have Christmas presents, you know moves then into other kinds of, of local support for, um, bigger issues. And, and I think, you know, you can kind of start to trace these steps of how did she become someone who could later in life, (laughs) you know, help bring about these huge public works projects. Well, she started early, she started smaller, she sort of cut her teeth and learned her leadership skills and probably, you know, along the way made some mistakes, um, but learned, how to lead and how to lead effectively and super organized, very, very organized um, from an early, early stage. But I think that has to do also with the fact that she was in many ways taking care of her father's, the home life, right? Her, as her older siblings went off and started their lives, she became someone who ran the household because her dad was on call all the time. And so she learned how to multitask. She was really good at it. Um, and something that she was praised for throughout her life. So I think it's fun to pull back those layers and and F time right and say, who was the young Celia? What did she care about? Um, how did she learn to do the things that she later would do at such a grand scale? And And then to see, you know, to look at her later public works projects, for example, and think about, huh, of course, that kind of a project would have been interesting to her because it has roots in the kinds of things she was doing with her her father earlier in life. And so tracing those threads is really fun. And it makes a person make more sense to you, right. Than sort of mm-hmm. dropping in on the story of this fully formed yeah. <laughs> revolutionary heroine um, who, you know, that's kind of been, that's sort of the depiction is, you know, not many pictures of her when she was younger, not many stories from when she was younger, here she is in her fatigues in the Sierra Maestra, and that's right. where the story
2: begins. Someone who just kind of emerged on the scene and you don't know anything really about them.
1: Yeah. yeah. And just came fully, fully ready. prepared and ready, yeah. you know, and it's who of us in, in our, I
2: mean, that just doesn't add up for human right. experience. Right, a born revolutionary. Right? Yeah. 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 I so. thought it was, um, I thought it was really interesting in chapter three, especially that moment. And again, like your, your buildup I think is really um, engaging for, for any of the readers because that moment in chapter three where you kind of talk about how Celia was at the funeral for Eduardo Chivas, and so was Fidel. But they had this moment where they were both in the same place, but they never talked to each other. They weren't in contact. They didn't know each other, really, until much later. But you kind of tease us a little bit, because obviously that's a relationship that, that will become very important later down the line. But can you tell us a little bit about um, just the context, I think, around that funeral, like who Eduardo Chivas was, who he's obviously a figure who I think in the last couple of years in particular within the scholarship has gained a lot more attention But it's still not really widely known. Um, So, can you tell us a little bit about like who he was, and you know, obviously, his relationship to the Orthodox Party and the political context at the time, and why Celia was present there, or even Fidel, for example?
1: I I think that I love that moment, and it was—it wasn't something I realized until you know you sort of start tracing. You're putting stories side by side. Okay, where was Fidel at this time? Where was Celia at this time? Who was where? You know, you're kind of putting their their chronology side by side and you realize, oh wow, okay, so this was likely the first time that Fidel and Celia were at the same place at the same time, didn't of course meet or anything. But I think it was important to note that because we see, again, back to what we were just talking about, she was already involved and already they they sort of overlap in this moment, but they were both they were walking Almost side by side, right? In 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 many ways, they just hadn't quite had the 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 intersection hadn't happened yet, and it happened in that moment, unbeknownst to the two of them, the kind of influence that they would eventually have in the in the collaborations. But I I I wanted to make sure again to include that her father was very involved in the Orthodox Party. He he believed that U.S. was going to do the things that that previous leaders that he had believed in wasn't, weren't going to accomplish. He really thought he was an authentic leader, a true Patriot. And so, you know, we learned that Shivas on his, as he's sort of campaigning comes through Pilon, he's entertained and actually stays, um, with Celia and, and her family at their home. And we have these great photos of her. There aren't many, but there are a couple where you see her very young, um, with him, with Chivas and, and other members of the sort of Orthodox youth who are helping to support his campaign. Um, and, uh, you know, there are stories from family members. They've told me, I think that was one of her first, they would say, I think that was one of her first big crushes, right? Like that Chivas for her was um, larger than life. And certainly imagine the influence, this national political figure is staying in your home. And so you're getting to have this contact with him and understanding his vision and motivation in a really personal way. And so, you know, she really, like her father, they became very um, devoted, you know, supporters of of his campaign. And when she went to the, when she, you know, when he committed suicide, and I say this in the book, um, you know, the story goes that she was devastated that it was a devastating political loss. It was a devastating, for supporters of the Orthodox party, but also a, um, a, a devastating personal loss to her and one that you know, she, she remembered for years. But again, I think it's, it's important in a, in a bigger sense to think about this as helping us understand, okay, here's someone who, like other members of the 26th of July movement, uh, was already was already campaigning, was already, I mean, she wasn't campaigning, excuse me. She was supporting a campaign. She was learning the ropes. She was understanding national politics, participating in national politics in a really um, important way. Her ties to the Orthodox youth and pictures of her, you know, at, at a dinner table with, you know, the, the a group of young people who had been out sort of campaigning for, for Chivas, I think, tell us so much about her preparation for the role that she would assume when she becomes an official member of the 26th of July movement. And this is also how the 26th of July movement learns about her, right? Because the other question is, well, how'd they find her? How did she connect to them? And though the the connection to Fidel didn't happen at the the funeral, she was on, you know, she was on the radar of several of the key leaders as somebody who, especially in that particular region, was well-connected, had political experience political sort of organizing experience who came from um political stock in the sense of you know having a father who had campaigned and um you know was a very vocal um he, he politically very vocal right he i mentioned several of his own writings and um, and such so she 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 was on people's radar and then sort of connects to the 26th of July a little bit down the road. But I think that's an important chapter for understanding how she becomes who she is and, and the values that, that shaped her and, and the, the just experience, the real hands-on experience with, with national politics.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system system.
2: Yeah, can, can you elaborate a little bit more about what her early involvement with the rebels after the attack of Ankara was like um, and how she really got involved and kind of grew within the movement itself?
1: When so she she was so well entrenched in that zone um, in eastern Cuba. And once it was determined or as they were trying to figure out where the, um, you know, the landing site would be when the rebels returned to the island to really, you know, launch the revolution, as we call it, they knowing that she was there and again, she was already on their radar but needing someone who could really help with the on-the-ground kind of networking and supply management um, that would be necessary to you know, have some, to get something like this off the ground. Um, she really became an important person there. And again, I mean, she was ready. She was ready to take on something like that. I don't think just anybody, you could just go to anybody and say, okay, we're going to affect a, a landing of the revolutionary troops here on this beach. And yeah, so we need to, you need to make that happen for us. She, she was ready and not to say there weren't challenges in terms of getting the supplies and the guns and all that, but she, she understood the terrain. She understood the people that lived in that zone. They trusted her. So when she went to them to say, listen, I need you to have a Jeep ready here at this location, or I need you to help me get this money or weapons or whatever. These are people who, um, felt connected to her and trusted her, trusted her father. And, um, and so again, I think those interpersonal connections just can't be, um, we have to, we have to understand their importance to understand her effectiveness in that, in that phase. And again, she was very strategic. She was very organized. organized, She had the ability to see the big picture. And, um, and so I think she brought all those skills to bear in a, in a big way in that, In that particular moment. So that's helping with the landing really brought her in. And then, of course, it just sort of trace almost month by month from there, how her role changes, but um, and increases and how the trust that Fidel will place in her increases over time. But she she was definitely exactly the right person in exactly the right place at exactly the right moment. Right. And then they were smart enough to realize that.
2: And, you know, this chapter also, like, you, you obviously pay really close attention to her, her involvement with the, with the rebels, but you also kind of deviate a little, and you start talking about Celia the person, not just Celia the revolutionary or, you know, the rebel, and you, you talk a little bit about, about how her father's illness and, her, and his death affected her. Can you elaborate a little bit more on how... Like, what kind of an impact that had on her? Obviously, we've talked about how, you know, key of a figure he was and, and, her, and her influence and her political ideas. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what that moment was like for her, what that year was like for her?
1: Yeah, I think that was emotionally one of the sort of top three hardest um, phases of my research, just because, uh, I, I mean... Uh, There were many teary eyed days in the archive and I should mention here in terms of methodology, one key thing to understand about how this book came to be and how, especially when it comes to her relationship with her father, this just wouldn't have been possible except that the last moment, and I talk about this in the book, I was given access to Mm. her archive um, in Havana that, you know, it's, it's, it's the archive that she created, and is very difficult to get access to because it's where a lot of the, the, the records relating to the top, you know, Fidel and Che Guevara, where those are housed. And, and I had asked repeatedly for years and years because I, I suspected that the documents in, housed there would really give me her voice because so much of what I was able to uncover prior to that moment were documents produced about her, artifacts produced about her. And so always, I was looking for her own voice and I hoped that they would be there in the, 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 in the archive. And they thankfully were, but one of the things that was included there is the, um, are the letters between her family members. And so I was able to really hear in an intimate way, her love for her family, her, calling on them for support. Her, her siblings were critical, also critical players in helping her organize these supply chains, these supply networks. And in many cases, actually going and buying the supplies and, risk and at great risk and making sure that they got to where she needed to be or uh, needed them to be. But I, I read the letters between her and her father and, and I'd always known that they were very close, but it's not really until you read someone's letters that you really understand the way that they interacted and the way that they felt about each other. And she showed a vulnerability Mm -hmm. with him that at least in terms of recorded history, you don't see much. And with her siblings too, but I think it was very special with her dad, a vulnerability that comes from deep trust and deep understanding, right? She could, she could tell him things about what she was experiencing and what she was feeling in great detail um, in a way that she felt, she felt safe doing, but reading the letters where he was getting sick. um, And, and, and then of course, after he passed away and, but she realized, and this was the one that really got me was when she, she realized, I'm not going to see my father again because I can't, because I've made a life choice to participate in this revolution. And it is going to require that I, you know, I can't, I can't attend to my personal life in the ways that I would want. But what was so touching is she said, but I know you understand this, dad, because yeah. you you were similarly politically um, devoted and you understand the cause. And you and I have always had that in common. We understand that about each other. And so the fact that I can, can't be there, I know you understand. And, and she struggled with it after he died. There are a few letters to her siblings where you can see her there's that regret, you know, cause you, it's so painful. I mean, it's just so painful. You're, you're what a thing, right? I think that's just normal, but she knew if she went to visit him, she put herself at great risk, the movement at great risk, her, potentially her father at risk. And so she decided to stay away. She didn't attend his funeral, um, which was probably a good choice. There were um, government officials there waiting, hoping to catch her. Um, but instead she sent the movement, sent flowers to the, to the funeral. But again, I, I, those were hard chapters. Those were hard pieces to write just because of they were just emotionally taxing, but also beautiful, you know, just beautiful in the sense of the father daughter relationship and how important it was to her and, and that they truly did understand each other at a deep level, not just as father and daughter, but I think maybe putting it in their terminology as true Cuban patriots. I think that they, they saw each other that way, and he was proud of, of her. The joke was always that when he was in the hospital in Havana, he said, jokingly, I, I, I never knew that someday I'd be known as Celia Sanchez's father, right? Because he had always been the kind of, quote unquote, famous one or well-known, right, well-respected. <laughs> yeah. And so the tables had turned, but he said it with all love and, and admiration. And so it was it was a difficult but beautiful part of, of her of her story. And I think her public works projects are a testament to, and and sort of um, crafted in remembrance of her father. I mean, I see her father's Warmless. influence
2: all over all of them. Yeah, absolutely. And the and the next chapter, um, you move us very geographically. You move the reader kind of away from, you know Celia's childhood homes and the mountains of the Sierra and you kind of center us into her apartment in Abedal in Havana right after the triumph of the revolution where she kind of takes not she doesn't have like this kind of like battle role anymore now she takes on the role of like you know a high-ranking position a political position can you talk a little bit more about what that time was like for her what that transition was like for her
1: yeah, I think it's interesting, precisely as you said, the the geographic move that comes for so many of them. Right, it's not just a different phase of the revolution; it's a different phase of her life. She moves from the the world that she had always um, lived in and been so entrenched in, and not to say she didn't go back to to visit, but she never, you know, lived in that in the eastern part of the island again. And so here she is, small town girl, quote unquote, moving to Havana to this very, um, you know, centrally located, I wouldn't say swanky uh, apartment, but an, a nice apartment. And, you know, her apartment becomes a hub of a lot of, a lot of activity. I talk about the various people who pass through there and, and um, people sort of shorthand referred to it as, you know, the as a place where conversations, important conversations often happen and where certainly Fidel was, was um, in and out. I, I talked to Celia's nephew, who kind of grew up in that apartment, and said that you know it was an interesting revolving door of of important political figures, Cuban and otherwise, who came through there, and um, and it was it was more than just an apartment. It was a it was an office. It was it was kind of a, a political hub for for the government, and um, and I think in terms of the transition from the war to then this administrative role. I have to imagine that as with all transitions, it was a difficult one. It was a challenging one, but again, thinking about where her comfort zone is and where her real strengths are, you know, I think I envision her sort of setting up shop in Havana, getting everything settled pretty quickly because she was, you know, very organized and then getting to work and, and, um, and probably not really ever stopping to, in truth, <laughs> she's definitely working the whole time, but setting up shop and getting to work and being really in one of her strongest phases, I think, because then of course she, she the titles help, of course, and the access helps, but I think she had learned a lot. She had come into her own. She understood her strengths. She had the networks established to get things done. and And it helped that Fidel by that point um trusted her and gave her a lot of autonomy. I mean everyone always asked me how did she do so much and she died in 1980 it seems like she must have lived much longer than that to have done all that she did. And I and I think she was just incredibly efficient. She was very good at knowing who to call to get what thing accomplished, which is a, which is a real skill and and getting the resources mobilized quickly and then, you know, there wasn't a lot of red tape because from all accounts, Fidel just trusted her and was, you know, she could sort of present an idea and he was like, okay, sounds good. You know, I, 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 I trust you make it happen. And so she, her, the pace that she could move at, as a result, I think was, was phenomenal. And that's how we can explain that at the time of her death there, you know, Havana and other places are just really dotted with these material, you know, sort of, um, this material evidence of her vision and contribution.
2: I found it really interesting, especially like during this, this phase, like her devotion, as we talked about a little bit before, like to public works and creating a living archive of the revolution. And one, like just her from a personal standpoint, her understanding of history and the meaning behind needing to do these types of works is just so fascinating to me. Um, and I'd like to know, like, what your thoughts are. Can you tell us a little bit more about what kinds of work she did and what you kind of cover in the book in terms of, like, um, her real contribution to the revolution and the memory of the revolution in that way?
1: I think that the, the archive is the number one contribution. And there are so many public works projects. I mean, of the ones that probably non-historians or non-academics know best that Copelia Ice Cream Park, of course, is a, is a institution in Havana, but, and, and, and that was a passion project too. Again, thinking about how much she go back to Christmas toys for kids, right? I mean, she really understood the, the need for spaces for community support and, and coming together and, um, social spaces, right? She understood the social space, the importance of social spaces to building community, building um, camaraderie and that kind of a thing. And so um, I think that that was, that's probably her best known one, but I think the archive is the most interesting and from my perspective, the the most important. I think as a historian, I just had a special love for that project and, and, and an amazement at The work that it entailed, because if you think about it, she was she was wise enough, and I think that this does come from her father being such a lover of history, and her seeing him writing books about history and visiting historical sites with him, and you know the 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 statue in Medellin and the in the park of Jose Marti, like he's the one that helped get that project, um, you know, off the ground. I think she watched how he worked as a historian and she learned from him and she learned to value little scraps of paper, right? Little notes, little communiques. Um, she also organized her father's uh, medical notes when he'd go to visit someone, you know, she would she would organize those notes and we see her keeping similar notes in, during her career. But, you know, things that other people might discard as unimportant, she saw the value in and she, you know, kept and recopied thousands of those pieces of paper. And she would ask people, you know, Hey, get me all your stuff. And this is while the war is happening. This isn't later in, it happened later as well, but in the moment, right. To have that awareness that what we are living is a historical moment. That's going to matter for generations to come. And we're going to need to be able to tell the story accurately, such a historian's mentality. I just love it. And, um, you know, so she had these famous bags, and these bags are now like almost like relics. These leather bags that she would carry all these dispatches and communications in, and then the phenomenal work of running parallel to the other things she was doing post-revolution, organizing thousands of pieces of paper, and 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 sort of laying them all out in this chronological fashion, making sense of them. You can see on some of them where she has um, corrected dates or added dates. And you can see her puzzling through like a gigantic puzzle. This happened first. This person wrote this, putting things together and sort of mentally organizing the archive. And then, of course, it becomes an actual institution. And to get the, the institutional support to have all of that um, set up and preserved in proper conditions to make sure that they things wouldn't just disintegrate. And it was a, you know, it was a multi-year project, but now once I could really appreciate it once I was able to get access to it and see the work that she had done and how much information was there and to think that if she hadn't done those things, would we be able to tell these stories in the detail um, that we're able to? And so I think, you know, in the list of all the public works projects that I that I mentioned, and some are very, you know, <laughs> very... Um, fancier perhaps. Um, and, and, or you see them on TV more often. This is, that's the one I think that was closest to her heart, closest again, to the kinds of things that she and her father valued. And then so important for us to be able to, to know day by day, how did they do that thing? <laughs> like, how did these young people, um, pull together this, this revolution? And, um, And it was just it was just fascinating work. I feel so fortunate that it worked that I was able um, to to visit it and really see the vision the vision behind that dream
2: of hers. And so and it comes out beautifully on the the page as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So moving on to chapter six, which I'm gonna I'm gonna be honest is my favorite chapter because I just found it so fascinating. Because I'm just so as a as a historian, I'm so fascinated by competing narratives. And just this moment where she no longer is on the back burner. She's not really this person who's not well known. She's her image and who she was and what her relationships with other people were like was so central to um, both like the Cuban narrative as well as what was going on outside in the exile community. So I think that chapter just brings up so many interesting questions and just insights about her legacy and the way that she's memorialized today even can you tell us a little bit about what some of these narratives were that were being thrown around about her in the U S and what the kind of battle that was being waged over her image was like, and obviously a little bit about her growing relationship with you that we've obviously talked a little bit about um, how it was kind of like a budding relationship, but really what her relationship was like and the kind and how that influenced the kinds of narratives that were coming out.
1: Yeah. That chapter was fun to write. I, um, it started from a question that that chapter was about answering the question for myself because I'd heard it so many times. No one talked about Sally in the United States, right? That was the narrative. Like nobody really even knew who she was. And I thought we're taught to question a thing right before it's a thing. And and I realized, oh, my goodness, you know what? Uh, I, I need to be able to if that's true, I need to prove it. And if it's not true, you know, we need to I need to delve into it. So um, I was fascinated to see that. It's not actually true, right? She was spoken about in the U.S. press and in very specific ways and in and the, and the sort of the tracing the ch- how that narrative changes over time is absolutely connected to broader geopolitical changes that were happening. But what I discovered is that she was from very early on recognized by uh, the U.S. press and the U.S. government as a person of influence, right? They, they knew enough to know that here's someone who is always <laughs> right there, wherever Fidel is, she's right there. That probably says something but without even knowing the specifics of, of her contributions. Um, it was, I think it was easy f- for people to realize, OK, here's somebody who probably is uh, is very connected to Fidel and, and knows what things that are going on. But what I enjoyed, what was interesting for me is I cast the net wide. What all was said about Celia in the U.S. media and and by the government? And then how do we understand the, those narratives? And what you see is, of course, it changes when when we are, when the Cuban rebels are these sort of Robin Hood figures, depictions of her, and that's a brief period of time, but are positive, right? That she's someone who, there's a kind of curiosity, there's a, a kind of a respect in some ways that comes through of like, here's someone who's been centrally involved in this, we'd like to know more about her, but... No denying that she's important, and then when U.S. Cuban relations pivot, change dramatically. I mean, you can almost trace it to the day. Right? Like depictions of her change dramatically, and then it's you know, she's a person of influence. No denying, and that's dan- and therefore she is dangerous. And and because she's a woman, uh, you know, her particular flavor of threatening is uh, should be a special concern. And, and I trace it alongside the shifting depictions of Fidel because I think that's important to recognize as well, right? Fidel goes from being this Robin Hood figure in the same way to someone who is threatening, who is um, emasculated and, and demeaned in many sort of gendered ways. And so I wanted to make sure that I didn't just say this only happened to Celia. She was only treated in this way. Both of them, both of them and others, but especially them. Um, you know, their the framing of who they were was was recast as to be feared. Um, you know that she was she was dangerous. That her sex, her female sexuality was, you know, um, that she was using it or she would use it as as a tool of influence, and and so it's just interesting. And perhaps not surprising, but I thought it was important to show, take some time and really show here's what happens to the way that she's framed in the United States. And we can understand sort of later depictions um, of her through that lens. Like you know, you, But it took laying it out to show they were talking about her, but let's talk about how they were talking about
2: her and why they
1: were talking about her
2: in the ways that, that they were. Do you think that her, close affiliation to feel like kind of overshadowed her contributions?
1: I think that that has definitely been, even in my own work, I've, I've, there have been moments of frustration where, you know, I would, for example, give a talk on Celia and I would realize three fourths of this audience is here because they just want to ask one question, right? Was she, was she lover? Yeah. was she romantically uh-huh. involved? Was she romantically involved? And so I don't, you know, here's the answer to that question. And, and I do think it's overshadowed in many ways because that has been the focus and for good or bad, right? That, and a lot of times that happens with women. This is not a, this is not something unique to sell a powerful women. How many cases can we think of where their power and influence is explained through a relationship to a powerful man? Um, but, you know, I, I don't ignore that part of her legacy, but, Going back to what I said at the outset, I didn't want to overstep what we know. I mean, we don't know. We're probably never going to know. Neither one of them ever spoke about it. Most of the time, I think, I want to say, well, who cares anyway? But it matters in the sense that it does perceptions of that, if nothing else, have have shaped the ways that people have reacted to and are understanding her influence and her legacy. But who, 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 who actually knows? Right. But it is interesting how it's a hot button topic. And I talk about one dinner party in particular where the topic came up and and one younger person at the party was about to offer what I can only imagine was an anecdote from one of, I think it was his father, um, who said, who, I guess he was going to say, you know, that they actually were lovers. My father was there and during the revolution and. And this is what I he observed, and was cut off. But the, the young man was cut off by an older member of the dinner party who was like, We don't talk about that. So again, you can't say it doesn't matter because it does, but it has um I did I, I wanted to be clear in the book that there are other ways actually of framing how their closeness that why do why do we always jump to that conclusion where if two men work side by side in a collabor, collaborative relationship for decades. In most cases, right? They're considered well. They're war buddies, right? They they fought in a war together. They, of course, they were close. But if it's a, it's you know, in a case of a woman and a man, uh,
2: right? It forces know, like the one, the reader to to you know tackle their own assumptions and, and figure out right. Why they, surely they the must have been sleeping together. together right? yeah, surely like, that's the only p- thing that were. makes and sense.
1: Yeah, that's the only that of course, of course, and you think really, of course. I don't know. Is it of course? So I wanted to tease that and and like you said sort of challenge the reader to at least think about other framings recognizing who who knows where I don't I don't know that we're ever gonna know the the answer and um, and and I'm okay with that I hope other people can be okay with that and that's kind of where I always leave when I give talks and people ask me that this is kind of where I always come back to it's, I'm okay with not knowing I hope you're okay with not knowing and I guess in some ways I'm I and if you're not okay with not knowing, <laughs> maybe you need to think about, like, what does that mean? Yeah. Interesting, you know, so and I was but there's gonna, no getting around it.
2: I was going to ask this question a little bit later towards the end, but I think this is a pretty good place to put it. Um, her relationship with other men, I think, has been uh, well documented, but I'm curious if you were able to find anything or really kind of dive into whether or not it ended up being on the page or not about her relationship to other revolutionary women. For example, like I, I don't know why the entire time I was very curious about what her relationship was like with like being my Spain, for example.
1: She, um, there isn't a lot documented about that. Now I have anecdotal, cause I, I wondered that as well. I wondered about her. Uh, certainly we know that she had relationships with women who fought in the revolution. Um, and you know, the Mariana Grajales brigade, she was involved in that. She and Aide Santa Maria clearly formed a really close relationship. And, and, you know, Margaret Randall, who's written a great biography of her, also reinforced that message that though of, of the revolutionary women leaders, they were two who were, were closest and had a great understanding and affinity for one another. Um, but I, I can I was asking a, a lot of people about her involvement with the um, Federation of Cuban Women which she was involved with, she received recognitions and from them. And we have those, those pictures, but um, that was really Vilma Spine's territory. And so that led me to delve into, well, what was her relationship like with Vilma Spine? And again, this is from not documented, but from family members and and, um, colleagues that they did not get along particularly well. And it might've been a personality difference, um, you know, I, I, give some other possible, there are other stories about Vilmas being true or not that don't always necessarily point, paint her in the, um, you know, in the, in the best light. I don't know, I don't know if they're true or not, but, um, those could also be the reason, but did not have a particularly close relationship with her, but she and I, they, until I, um, suicide were, were quite close. So, um, yeah, I think she had those those female relationships and in, in close female relationships, but um, those are the ones that we we know, I guess, best or know most about. And and she was very close to her family and her siblings. I think those were her real closest friendships were with her own her own family. She kind of kept her circle. I think her personal inside circle
2: was was. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense, and I I, I can tell that you, you obviously in the book you mentioned that V really was just kind of in her own sort of element, uh, very separate from Celia. But her relationship with um, I like Santa Maria was obviously very important, and I like I I like how you address like her the issue of her suicide, especially like considering what Celia's you know, dealt with in the past in terms of like her mother dying and then her fa- father passing away, and like these types of deaths have really impacted her, and I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Um, I wanted to kind of talk about since we're talking about death, I wanted to kind of talk about um chapter seven, which really just kind of covers, you know, um, that moment in, in 1980 when 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 Zeria passed away. Can you talk a little bit about like what the context was like, what happened, and um, and what way she was sort of remembered in popular memory?
1: Yes, I will. And I did want to add, and I don't remember if I said this explicitly, but I think I did in the book that one of the um, reasons for why they suicide. Some have said that Celia's death was an influence in that in that decision. So again, I think you know that's just another marker or or hint at their at their closeness. But when Celia died, um, you know she had been battling lung cancer. She was, as I mentioned, I think in a few places in the book, a lifelong smoker. Uh, she got chastised a lot by not taking care of herself. She was someone, I think, who burnt the candle at both ends. Probably, you know, she was always very thin and um, didn't eat a lot, drink a lot of coffee, smoked a lot. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> and so that caught up with her. She was sick for a while before she died, but as often happened at that time, it, you know, you didn't really talk about it or as passed off as something else. If, if it was mentioned that she was ill and then there was this whole framing it as a fungus and, you know, you didn't talk about the C word. So um, even people close to her didn't necessarily know exactly what was going on. And plus she was not someone to put her problems as I understand it, to put her problems on others. She was a kind of a suffer in silence, keep it moving kind of person. And, um, and yet she, you know, in the end the the lung cancer that was a family problem you know she had several members of her family die from lung cancer so there was definitely a vulnerability there i think as well but yeah when she passed the i talk a lot about the funeral because you know if we look for moments of where we can understand someone's importance legacy what what have you i think seeing how they structured now she designed a lot of her funeral i was i thought it was important to say that because again i think yeah. it Till the end, she's an organizer, right? She is all about the details. So she had planned a lot of that, um, probably to unburden other people as much
2: as as to you know want things her way. Yeah, I was gonna say, knowing what you've what you kind of have told us mm-hmm. and like the story you've made about her, um, it's it, it would be logical for her to be like, okay, I don't want anything too ostentatious, obviously, or too you know yeah. crazy elaborate, because that just fell right within the wheelhouse of who she was.
1: Yeah. And so, I again, and because she knew for a, a long time that she was sick, I, you know, she wanted to make sure that she, um, I think, to have those things planned. And um, but, yeah, I mean, the, the with 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 rallies and public events like that, I do think in the Cuban case, it's important and elsewhere to think about, you know, the, the sort of performative components of. Something like that, you know, that this became a moment to certainly recognize her life and her contributions and a lot of the speeches and poems and things that I detail um, in that chapter were about recognizing her contributions. But it's also a really critical moment in the Cuban Revolution. If you think about 1980, we're still in that kind of there's still a kind of a euphoria about how the promises of the, the early promises of the revolution in terms of um, sort of redistribution and education and health, um, you know, sovereignty. There was still a kind of le- there was still a, not kind of there was still a legitimacy. Certainly we see that shift after 1991. But late 70s, 1980, you're also starting to see some cracks and some questions about the fulfillment the ways that the revolution was or wasn't fulfilling the great, the great promises and worker absenteeism, especially there worst concerns about women and worker absenteeism start to sort of really bubble up. And so I think it becomes a moment to recognize her, but also a moment to try to really um, reconsolidate the, the revolutionary nucleus, right? Pull people back in to a place of, of hope and faith and belief and, um, you know, I don't know, some might say obedience, right. To, to the revolution. And so it sounds kind of crass to say that, but timing, timing is everything. (laughs) So it was, it was an interesting moment, a kind of a vulnerable moment. And then she died. Here's this person who would be easy to frame as completely, in step with the with Fidel's vision, right, and his values, and unwavering, and you know, sacrificial, and so all of these kinds of things that they wanted to be able to call on the Cuban people to be more generally. Here's this model, right, of someone who you can look to who lived her life in this way. No one is one hundred percent like nobody is a hundred percent a perfect anything, right? But. Once you're dead, you're, you're not going to do anything to subvert that that narrative. And, and so she becomes a really important, that new woman model. Having that in that moment, I think, was especially important. And so we see those meanings being attached to her and the sort of repetition. This is why I talk about this newspaper was saying this and this newspaper was saying this and this poem was saying this because you start to see this repetition of words, adjectives, um, uh, imagery attached to her that then you know it kind of takes on a life of its own in a way, and uh, so I think that was a really that was a really interesting moment for for Cuba and certainly for in, within her biography, no doubt.
2: In the, in your final chapter, you talk about um, you you bring us back to Maria Luna, which I thought was was really cool, um, and you did a beautiful job kind of tracing the different afterlives of Celia Sanchez. Can you talk a little bit about? what those afterlives look like. I think I was especially struck by this um, version of her as a mother to the Cuban nation, even though she was not actually a mother in her life. I thought it was really interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. I, I wanted to take it back to Media Luna for myself as much as for the book and being able to go back um, and, and sort of witness her hometown celebrating her and her legacy. And I wanted to hear how they, how they articulate who they are as much as who they think she was or who they believe her to be, but who they are through her. And certainly it's such a point of pride for little Maria Luna to be the, you know, the, the, the place the, that the hometown the origin. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely. That becomes part of all of their origin stories and they, and they're very invested in, in that. And so it was a powerful thing for me so far towards the end of the project to be able to go back and, and be a part of that and, 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 and witness it. And, um, but yeah, I think there's so many different framings of her legacy, uh, her, you know, people's legacies can be pretty elastic things. It's interesting. It's like you find people can use others, how, how they need them. And, um, the mother, since you asked specifically about that, the sort of mother framing can kind of, it's if we look at other Ava Perone, for example, is the example that always comes to mind, you know, when a, when a significant uh, figure, female figure isn't actually a biological mother, it actually almost makes it easier in some ways to frame her in the ways that they do um, because she's framed as a kind of mother to all. Yeah. She's kind of a godmother. She's, and it's almost part of her sacrificial role in some ways too, that she, she denied herself the the joys of family life, having her own family, because the Cuban people were her family, right? The Cuban children were her were her care, and and it matched up against going back to again Christmas toys for children. There were pieces all along the way of ways that she had connected to and cared for individual children, but it becomes a much more super madre kind of a framing um, that. That again, you know, she she wasn't a biological mother, but she her care for the Cuban people was that of a mother. And there's something I think people find that very soothing. Um, it's very gendered, no doubt to be sure. But um, it was not uncommon for people to to in the first few moments of our interview to bring up the word mother or something maternal. I thought that that was an that was um, you know an interesting framing of of her legacy. But I will say also, and I talk about this in the book, she she wasn't a biological mother, but she did have, she did bring a lot of children into her home and raised them or raised them for a period of time, helped them with education costs, or I should I don't know how much of it came from her personal budget and how much um, she, you know, it became sort of out of the revolutionary government funds, but she um You know, she did have actual children that she cared for. And this started with children who had lost children of fellow uh, revolutionary fighters who had been killed and the children became orphaned as a result. And she starts sort of started taking taking them in. And so um, there were there were several of those important relationships in her life as well. So not biological, but certainly played that role for, for some individual women and then framed in that, in that way. But it helps, again, if you're thinking about the, the state wanting to use her legacy as a way to mobilize people to aspire to this perfect revolutionary status, right? Unblemished, unquestioning, unwavering. Um, you know, that's, I think that there's a lot of that going on in that, in that as well.
2: Absolutely. And um, to kind of just sort of bookend our conversation, I think my last question um, uh, talks about sort of like the events going on today. And obviously, like there are mass demonstrations happening because of the, the protests going on in Cuba right now. And so what do you think the benefit is of continuing to have these types of discussions about Cuban revolutionary figures? Do you think her story, I think in particular, like politically charged as it is, will resonate with future generations?
1: That remains to be seen. And I grappled with that in the last chapter. And of course I wrote that prior to the um, all that's happening right now. One of the questions that I think is interesting, if you if I look at my friends who have kids in, in the school system in Cuba, now I'm, I've asked to borrow history books, you know, how are you learning about Celia now? Cause I'm trying, I was trying to understand for the future generations, how are they learning about these um, leaders and, I, I didn't find much. I thought that that was interesting um in terms of you know if you just want to think of school books as one measure right of of how future generations within Cuba will will remember her and and repeatedly, I was told like we we know these you know her public works, and we we know that she was involved in the early part of the revolution, um but couldn't probably give you many details and and I thought those conversations were so fascinating where they would be asking me questions, you know, well, what did she do? And then we, you know, what was that? And I thought, Oh my gosh, this is, this is in and of itself very interesting. But um, because her, one of the things I mentioned that I think is interesting about the circulation of someone's story and setting aside biographies, but other, you know, she's got a coin, there are stamps, there are, there's other sort of memorabilia attached to her memory that now, Circulates on eBay. <laughs> you know, you can find it on the internet, and so there's been this kind of proliferation and circulation of her image and and bits of her story, photographs, etc. That the state doesn't control. You know, that happens sort of in a more loose global kind of marketplace, and so I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens, not just in Cuba but but outside of Cuba, um, with you know understanding her and the other. And the other leaders and, and I hope my, of course, that my biography plays some small role in people understanding, or at least asking new questions uh, about her. But um, I think it's interesting now how that certainly was not the case. When I started this project, there was, you, you weren't going to find any stamps or photographs or anything like that of her. It's actually kind of, I wouldn't say not frightening. It's shocking sometimes what, cause people send me things that they found on eBay. I'm like, wow, how, how is this on eBay? this should be in a museum, you know, it's, it's sort of interesting, but, um, with, with the unrest that's happening now, I do think it will be interesting to see to what extent, if I'm going to focus on her specifically and not Raul Castro or Fidel, um, you know, she died in 1980. So there's, my sense is that, and this is, I I don't want to universalize that she is part of an era that, that again, was kind of, there was still a euphoria. A, a, there was some legitimacy, I'm putting that in quotes, but um, the sense that she was part of the revolution when it was still making good on many of the promises that were made by the revolutionary government. Not perfect, unblemished, what have you, but that you know she wasn't part of the nineteen post-1991 right. Cuban Revolution. And so I don't know to what extent she would be held She will be held, she'll be thrown in in the same way with the critiques of um, leaders who lived in the post-1991 phase. My fear, I mean, my fear is that she won't be mentioned at all, (laughs) that that she's going to kind of, what what, will people remember how, even if you go to the Museum of the Revolution or some of those um, institutions, you know, there's maybe one or two photographs of her. There are museums yeah, dedicated to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Pilon and Media Luna, two, those two homes are small, you know, museums. But if you go, anyone who's been there, you know, that it's like, no, not much, not much there, not much in the school books, certainly not on any, um, you know, billboards or anything like that. So. I don't know. It's it'll be interesting to see as they're sort of reckoning this reckoning process that's happening, what, where she'll where she will figure in with that. I don't know. Fascinating. I'll have to write a follow up piece <laughs> at some point. I'll revisit and see where are we now um, with wherever the Cuban revolution is, what will happen to how people talk about or remember um, those the leaders who passed before before 1991. Ay de Santa Maria um, being another, another case, right? It's,
2: yeah. Well, Dr. Sipka, thank you so much for, for taking the time to come out and talk to us about your research and your wonderful book. I honestly thought it was brilliant and really kind of informative about a figure that's so kind of not, not so talked about, I think, in, in a lot of the literature that we have on you know, the Cuban revolution or even just revolutionary figures in general. So I thought that was really good. Uh, We truly appreciate it. Uh, Dr. Supia's book is available for purchase at the University of North Carolina Press and other major book retailers. This is Rosemary signing off. Till next time.